All right, so we're going to be looking at Psalms 114 through 117 this morning. And if you're familiar with Psalm 119, you know the storm is coming. <laughs> it's a long one. I've already been looking forward and like, I don't know how many sermons this is going to take. We'll see how this goes. But Psalms 114 through 117 this morning, I've entitled the message, Thankful Servants. You know, and there's lots in this world to find to be unthankful about. Just get on social media for just a little bit, and there's a political situation, there's social situations, and there's all kinds of situations for us to be unthankful for, for us to want things different. And so we have to go looking for reasons to be thankful. And, and so, um, because what happens is, is if you are a thankful servant, then you realize your position that God's your master, and a thankful servant will want to do his master's will. If, if you are, and I are thankful to God for what he's done and what he's going to do, then we'll obey him. And so I was thinking about this this week as I was putting together a study. And, and one of the things that I was really thankful for this week is we were back at school. And that's opposite when I was growing up. Because when I was growing up, I dreaded, you know, as the calendar moved toward the start of the school year, I didn't want to go back to school. But now that I'm on the other side of things, I really like going back to school. And it's exciting and teaching a lot of uh, Bible classes and literature class and rhetoric class and all of that. And so I was reminded of something that I share often with our students in the Bible classes. And it's something that I wanted to share with you by way of introduction because I think it's really helpful for us as we study the Word of God. And as we study the Word of God, um, I would say more effectively, more efficiently, then that helps us to become thankful servants. So I want to share four words with you as you hold on to Psalm 114. Would you move to Genesis 1-1? Genesis 1-1, a verse you probably all have memorized. Genesis 1-1. And so the first word I want to offer to you is a word observation. So what we're going to do is I'm going to give you four words here. And it's really related to kind of inductive Bible study. It's something that I teach my students at school. It's something that's good for me to remind myself of. And it's, it's, a, help, it's a way for us to, to study the, the Bible, uh, I would say maybe a little more efficiently, to have a, have a focus. So the first word is observation. So what we want to do is we want to come to the Word of God. We want to merely observe what's there. So, so we just want to look and see, well, what's there? So I want to use Genesis 1-1 as my kind of template for this. So as we, I look at Genesis 1-1, I see in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So my observation there is that God created the heavens and the earth. <laughs> that's all that an observation is. It's just seeing what's there. But that's a really helpful place for us to begin because so many of us have kind of taken into things into our lives that aren't biblical, Things like, well, I think sh surely in the Bible it says somewhere, God helps those who help themselves. That, yes, it is in the Bible in the, the book of First Hesitations. Uh, <laughs> you guys got that one. All right, good. We're a good start. Okay, so that's an observation. Well, then we move on from observation to the second word I want to share with you, and that's interpretation. So observation and then interpretation. So a, a, a sample interpretation of Genesis 1-1 could be this. Huh, since God created all things... All things belong to him. That's an interpretation. See, it's not something that we merely observe. We're actually taking what we observe and say, well, what does this mean? Well, uh, so, so an interpretation of Genesis 1-1 is, since God created all things, all things belong to him. And you guys understand that? When you create something, it's a work of art or whatever it may be, you realize that the act of creating that thing means that it belongs to you. It's your property. Um, you know, I, I like to keep up with like kind of what's going on in film and different things. And there's this IP. It's called intellectual property. And so we understand that if someone produces an intellectual property, it belongs to them. Well, God created everything, so everything belongs to him. Okay, that's our interpretation. The next word I want to share with you is the word application. 
Application. So an application is saying, well, okay, I've observed it. I've interpreted it. What does it have to do with me? So what? Right? How does this apply to my life? Well, the application I take from Genesis 1-1 is I belong to God since I'm a creation of God. I belong to him, so I should do what he says. Because God created me, therefore I belong to him, and now I should actually, whatever he tells me to do, since he's my authority, he's my creator, he's my savior, I should just obey him. That's an application. And this leads us now to the, the final, final word I want to share with you, and that's correlation. And correlation is tying the verses together. It's saying, as we look at Genesis 1-1, most likely we're like, that reminds me of another verse, and it should. Would you turn to John chapter 1 for just a moment? John chapter 1. Don't worry, we'll get to the Psalms eventually. Uh, John chapter 1, we see something very, very similar. John 1, verse 1. Huh. In the beginning, that sounds really familiar, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. Um, and without him, nothing was made that was made. And kind of goes on from there. So, so John 1 would be a great correlation for us. So as we study Genesis 1, and we look at that and say, well, let me study John 1 at the same time, see how these things fit together. And John 1 gives an expansion of Genesis 1 by telling us, huh, God created all things through his son, Jesus Christ. All things belong to him. So now there, that leads us back to another application. Well, I need to obey all the things that Jesus has said. Because Jesus is my creator. So, so this is just kind of by way of introduction, but I think it's a helpful thing for us to remind ourselves. This observation, interpretation, application, correlation, it's a, it's a wonderful way to study the word of God. And then I would say at each step, prayer is involved. Okay, prayer is involved. They were praying over the scriptures. They were asking God for insight. But the main thing that I, I want to share with you is, and, and hopefully you admit to this or you believe this, I believe God has gi- given me the gift of teaching. That, that that's one of the gifts he's given to me. You can debate me afterwards, hopefully privately. Don't let everybody else know I can't teach. Um, but that's something that he's given to me, but maybe he hasn't given that to you, so maybe God hasn't put you in a position to teach the word of God, but please understand, you can understand the word of God. Every single person in here can understand the word of God. Every born-again believer has the Holy Spirit dwelling within them, will enlighten you, illuminate. There's all kinds of study uh, things available. I want you to study the word of God on your own and to realize God can help you to understand it. I, I, I get to speak into your life, you know, one time a week through the word. And it's God's opportunity for me to do what he's called me to do. But, you know, the, the Lord himself is always with you. And he can always teach you his word. And so I'd encourage you to study it on your own. Realize God can give you understanding. All right, let's go back to the Psalms now. Psalm 114, let's jump into it. Seeking to be thankful servants. So Psalm 114, you know, these Psalms right here that we have in this section, they were really sung at Passover. So they were sung at Passover as the the Jews celebrated the fact that God had brought them out of Egypt. Uh, it was a celebration of that 10th plague where, where the death of the firstborn and the angel of death passed over the Israelites as they had the blood on the doorpost. And you can read more about that in the book of Exodus to refresh your memory, but that's kind of the background of that. And so I want to jump into verses 1 through 6 here um, and then and to bring something out of this section. So Psalm 114, looking at verses 1 through 6, we read, when Israel went out of Egypt, the house of Jacob from a people of strange language Judah became his sanctuary and Israel his dominion. 
The sea saw it and fled. Jordan turned back. The mountains skipped like rams and the hills, little hills like lambs. What ails you, O sea, that you fled? O Jordan, that you turned back. O mountains, that you skipped like rams. O little hills, like lambs. Now, if you've ever kind of walked into a conversation between friends, and there are these friends that have known each other for years, and they're telling a story, and they have kind of this, this mutual fellowship together, and you walk in, you might be kind of like, I don't know what they're talking about. And they're laughing, and they're having fun, because they have an experience that you haven't had. So sometimes the Bible's like that. Sometimes we can walk into a psalm, and because we're not really familiar with how it all fits together, we're like, what is going on? I don't understand this conversation. And so this is where we kind of come back to correlation. The more that we read through the word of God, study the word of God, the understand the word of God, the more enjoyable it will become to us. The more we're like, oh yes, immediately, I know what this is talking about. This is poetic language here in verses one through six about the escape from Egypt. When he, when he says um, the sea saw it and fled, well, that's the parting of the Red Sea. And so as you're reading this on your own, as you're praying through it, then what happens, you kind of think about, man, what was that like? What would have been like for them, the Red Sea to part? What would have been to be an Israelite walking through and it says that the ground was like dry land and what was that, huh? And then you look at where it says the Jordan turned back, you realize that that's uh, in the book of Joshua, that whenever the Israelites were gonna cross into the promised land, that as soon as the priest stepped in with the Ark of the Covenant, then the, the, the waters stopped there and they were able to cross through. So now you see all this enjoyment. It's just like you can have such great conversation with friends that you've had for a long time because you have all this backstory and history and these shared experiences. That's possible for each and every one of us in the word of God. That as we spend time in the word of God, then it's like, like an old friend to us. Like, oh yes, I understand what this means. I understand what this is talking about. And there's joy that comes from that. Now, verses seven and eight, we see, tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob, who turned the rock into a pool of water, the flint into a fountain of waters. Okay, so I, I wanna address verse eight first. Verse eight speaks of when God brought water out of the rock. Right, and we kind of sang about that this morning. And so there's a situation there in the book of Exodus where the Israelites are upset and they don't have water. And God tells Moses to strike the rock and water comes out of the rock. And that rock comes up later. Paul says in 1 Corinthians that that rock was Christ. That was symbolic of Christ and about how Christ would be struck upon the cross and, and that what happened, life would come out of him. And what did Jesus say in John chapter seven? That when you receive the Holy Spirit, that living waters will flow out of you. So you see how these pieces start fitting together as you understand the word of God. And so it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. So symbolic language, but it, it draws our mind to all these things. Now we can be thankful. Because now as we think about this water from the rock and we think about how God's made provision in our own lives and, and to amazing things here. Now, I want to go back for just a minute to verse 7. Look at verse 7 there. It says, Tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob. The idea here, or the application, is that the inhabitants of the earth should tremble before God in awe and worship. Right? The, the most hardened cynic trembles and worships before something. The most hardened, cynical atheist maybe go out and see the night sky and just be overwhelmed. Even though he doesn't think anybody made it, even though he may think it's just happened by accident, he's overwhelmed by the magnitude. If he's not overwhelmed by magnitude, if we dropped him on a, on a raft 
in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. <laughs> he would be overwhelmed by the majesty and the greatness of it. So, so the, the application, though, for you and I as believers, if we truly believe, please hear me, if we truly believe that God has done the things that the Bible says he's done, then we're going to be overwhelmed by him. So if you and I find ourselves in a place today where kind of God's become old hat. Oh, yeah, Steve, all right, I know, just, just keep on going through the Psalms. We've got to make it eventually. Uh, and we're, we're just not really thinking about God in that way that we used to. The problem is not with God. The problem is with us. And so it's important for us to get back into the word of God and believe these things and begin to be overwhelmed by him once again. So um, it's going to take time, though especially if we've been overwhelmed by the temporary, the things that are right before us, the situations that we're dealing with, it's gonna take time to consider and believe the works of God. So if you and I will spend time in the word of God, and maybe we're like that one father from the gospels who said, I believe, help my unbelief, right? Maybe we're in a situation where we're saying like, I don't really know if I believe this thing anymore. I don't, spend time with God. Ask him to enlarge your heart. Ask him to, to help you to see wonderful things from his word. And it's not like God's gonna be like, you know what, I don't really care if people believe me or not. No, the whole thing is built on faith. So God is gonna do that work. And so, but it's gonna take us spending some time before him, recognizing who he is, so that our heart might be enlarged to receive what he has for us. All right, let's move on to Psalm 115 now. And so um, the theme here is that um, believers are being mocked by unbelievers. So believers are mocked by unbelievers. And so, as Solomon said, there's nothing new under the sun, <laughs> right? Unbelievers have always mocked believers. The, the majority, you know, almost always through human history, the majority of, of people are unbelievers, not believers, okay? And so that's what we have here. Verses one and two says, not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to your name give glory. Because of your mercy, because of your truth, why should the Gentiles say, so where is their God? Okay, so glory belongs to God. The psalmist wants God to glorify himself. Please understand, there is no way around this. This is the absolute truth. If you want personal glory, give glory to God. If you say, you know, I want the day to come where I'm, I'm exalted and raised up, Jesus tells you the easy answer. He says, humble yourself. Humble yourself and I will exalt you. But if you try to shortcut me, if you try to exalt yourself, he said, I'm gonna have to humble you. I'm gonna have to take you down. That's how it works over and over and over again. So if we're just honest, like I think it's honest to say I want to be praised. I want to be honored. I want to live a life of value. I want my life to be meaningful. Well, the Lord says you can have all of that, but the key is humble yourself. You know, love, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. You do those things, and I'll bring these other things to pass. And so the psalmist wants God to glorify himself. We, as we live lives that, that glorify God, then, then he's gonna be honored, and it's gonna be an awesome thing. Okay, um, but notice there in verse two, he says, why should the Gentiles say, so where is their God? Okay, Gentiles could be translated nations. It's just kind of shorthand for all those who don't believe, right? That's what he's saying. He says, why do, why do unbelievers mock us? Why do unbelievers say, where's where their God? And, and so this is a question that believers ask. 
um, especially if you're someone who likes to study the end times and you're kind of like, all right, you're, you, you have it, the map down in your head of how things are going to work out. And you're just wondering, why hasn't he done it already? Why hasn't he wrapped up this thing? Why hasn't he just put an end to evil? Why doesn't God just reveal himself and silence all those who oppose him? Well, he's going to, right? The day is coming when he's going to do that. But let me give you a couple of reasons why God hasn't done it yet. So would you turn with me to the book of Acts? So turn to your New Testament to Acts chapter 1. And you guys know how much I love correlation. We love turning places. Acts chapter 1. I want to look at verses 4 through 8. Okay. As you're turning there, kind of get you caught up what's going on uh, in context. Jesus has risen from the dead. Um, he's appeared to the disciples for 40 days. He's about to ascend into heaven. Okay, that's, that's where we are. So Acts chapter 1, verse 4, and being assembled together with them, okay, so, so with the disciples, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. Now, that's, you know, this is the song famously says, waiting is the hardest part, <laughs> and it is true. So he wants them to wait there. The promise of the Father is the Holy Spirit. He says, which he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, and you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And so it was going to be about 10 days after this. It was going to be the day of Pentecost. Therefore, when they had come together, here it is. So the, the disciples, they're hearing we're about to receive the Holy Spirit, but they're like all of us. They're basically like, well, that's great, but when are you going to establish your kingdom? When are you going to wrap this whole thing up? When are we going to rule and reign with you? This is what they say in verse 6. Notice, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Are you going to rule and reign now? Is this going to be the time where we can finally have a, be done with all the evil in this world? But notice what Jesus says in verse 7. It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. How many people have written books saying this is the time? Famously, there was a, a book that was written, 88 Reasons Why Jesus is Coming Back in 1988. He didn't. <laughs> and what happened, though, the, this author who you know, went against Scripture saying he knew when Jesus was going to return, he actually doubled down and wrote another book, 89 Reasons <laughs> Why Jesus is Going to Come in 89. And then after that, thankfully, he quit uh, and didn't write any more books. But this, this idea here, as we look at verse 7, is that God knows what he's doing. The Father has his time. It's not for us to try to tell him when he should do things. But notice, it's, it's not our concern, the times or seasons which the Father's put in his own authority. But what our concern is, look, verse 8, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Please understand that, that verse seven and verse eight both apply to you. Both apply to me. It's not for us to tell God when he should do things or these seasons he's put in an authority, but it is up to us to submit to the Holy Spirit, to be filled afresh with the Holy Spirit, to have those living water coming out of us by the Holy Spirit and to be witnesses. And so it's wonderful if we as believers, as thankful servants, just do our job. If we let go of those things that aren't in our authority, Verse seven's not in our authority, but verse eight is something we can do something about, is we can submit to the leading of the Holy Spirit. So I think this is one of the reasons why um, he hasn't established his kingdom yet, is because the Father has his own calendar. 
The Father has his own timetable, and we're going to see a little bit more about that as we turn to one more place. Will you turn near the end of your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 3? 2 Peter chapter 3, I want to look at verses 1 through 9. Now, both First and Second Peter, Peter's writing to the church, and persecution is picked up, and um, you know, there's a lot of challenges associated with being a thankful servant in a fallen world. It's not easy. So Second Peter chapter three, I want to look at verse one. Peter warns um, the, the people, his readers, and he's warning us as well about how things are going to be. He says, "Beloved." I write, I write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder that you may be mindful, right, to think about it, of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandments of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that scoffers okay, will come in the last days, walking in their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. So he said, basically, there's going to be people who don't believe the word of God. They're going to mock you. They're going to scoff. And they're like, you keep saying Jesus is going to come back. He hasn't come back. Everything's just going on. It's just, just how things are. Verse 5, Peter says, for this they willfully forget. In other words, they forget it on purpose. That by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water by which the world that then existed perished being flooded with water. In other words, they forgot that when God already brought judgment once upon the world, all but eight human beings were perished in that flood. And so it says, and then he moves on, but the heavens and earth which are now preserved by the same word are reserved from fire, for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. In other words, God judged the world once through water, but in the future, he's going to judge the world by fire, all right? And so we're kind of in, you know, that in-between time, what's happening right now. And then in verses 8 and 9, Peter gives the reason why God hasn't just revealed himself and, and burned everything up, why he hasn't just started, why he hasn't established his millennial kingdom and his new heaven, new earth just yet. Why? Well, we read, but beloved, do not forget this one thing. That with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. And I, think, I don't think he's, this is strict math. I think what he's saying is, God's on a different timetable than you are. God has a different way of looking at things. He has a different purpose. And here's his main purpose, verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise. In other words, it isn't that, that God's like us who promises something and then forgets it because he didn't put it in the reminders in his phone. That's not how God works. Notice, He's not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The reason why God hasn't, you know, taken over and established, he still wants people to be saved. And so Paul talks about the fullness of the Gentiles, and we can kind of talk about that another time. But just this wonderful picture. So you, you and I today, when we say, well, how bad are things going to get? Is it going to get worse and worse? The Bible seems to indicate it is going to get worse and worse. But here's the deal. Today is a day of salvation. Now is the appointed time that today people are getting saved. Jesus hasn't come back yet because he's still wanting to draw people to himself. So that's something for us to be thankful about. All right, let's turn back to Psalm 115. As you're turning there, what we're going to see in this next section is this contrast between God and idols between the true and living God and idols. So let's look at verse three here. It says, but our God is in heaven... He does whatever he pleases. Our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. In other words, the true God, the God of the Bible, is sovereign. He's the boss. 
And he always does what's according to his perfect nature. He always does what is right. And, and so you and I may get frustrated because God doesn't do what we want him to do. Right? He, doesn't, he doesn't move according to, to our schedule. Uh, but here's the key to uh, being a thankful servant. We're to conform to his will. His will is perfect, right? So we're to conform to his will. It's futility to try to get him to do our will, right? You can't arm wrestle God into doing what you want him to do. It just can't happen. So the safest place to be is to say, all right, I don't understand it. I don't know why things are the way that they are, but I'm just gonna get in line with his will. I'm just gonna do, and if I perish, I perish. I'm gonna do what he wants me to do. All right, let's look at verses four through eight now. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses they have, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not handle. Feet they have, but they do not walk, nor do they mutter through their throat. Those who make them are like them. So is everyone who trusts in them. Okay, big picture. It's all throughout the scriptures. Idolatry is futile. Idolatry is futile. Please remember that the worship of any created thing is idolatry. The worship of a celebrity is idolatry, right? The worship of a, of a thing, an object is idolatry. Uh, the worship of our own like ideas and, and dreams, it's all idolatry. And it's futile. And, and so and what I want you to focus on, I want me to focus on here in verse 8. Notice, those who make them are like them, so is everyone who trusts in them. The, the idea here is that idolatry is dehumanizing. Idolatry is dehumanizing. In other words, when we worship a created thing, we move away from what we were created to be, and we become less than human. We become less than truly human. And so God's goal is the opposite. God doesn't want to dehumanize us. Right, sometimes we think, well, you know, if God really loved me, things would be easier. If God really loved me, things would be more the way that, that I want them to be. But that's, that's not how God works. God wants to make us the, the fullness of humanity, right? And, and so God's goal for you and for me, let's remember, is Romans eight twenty nine. That's God's goal for us. He wants to conform us into the image of his son. That's what he wants. Now, as we honestly in the sincerity of our heart, look at Jesus compared to us, we say, well, there's a lot of work to be done. <laughs> and that work to be done is not going to be done by making our life easier. It's gonna be by bringing challenges and opportunities to grow our faith and all that kind of stuff. So God wants to, God wants to exalt us. He wants to raise us up. He wants us to be beautiful. I, I like to think about, I think a lot about heaven and I think about how glorious we're gonna be and about how it's gonna be awesome to see each other in the true fulfillment of who we were made to be. But idolatry does the opposite. Idolatry reduces us. It takes us down. It moves us away from God. And so the, the application for you and I is to make the triune, God, the triune God our sole focus of worship. You can enjoy watching a football game. You can enjoy listening to music. You can enjoy all those things. Don't worship those things. And I'm not just telling you, I'm telling me. It's very easy for us as creatures to worship other creatures. It's very easy but make the triune God your sole focus of worship, and here's what's going to happen. You will be continually growing and becoming what you were created to be. The, the, the people, I would argue, probably that have ministered the most in your life are be people who are moving in the direction toward God. You know, and, and so 
as you and I spend time with God, what's going to happen, and we're going to be somewhat like Moses. Remember when Moses was up on the mountain? And the more time that he spent with God, his face radiated that. You've been around Christians whose face radiated because they spent time with God. You've been around Christians who had that, that living water flowing out of their lives. That's how you and I become what we were made to become. We never become that by, by looking and focusing on created things. We, we, we become that by focusing on God. All right, let's move on to verses 9 through 11 of Psalm 115. It says, O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Okay, so this real, the focus, hey, trust in God, not in idols. <laughs> God is your hope. God is your, or your help and your shield. Verses 12 through 15 the Lord has been mindful of us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both small and great. Okay, so real simple. God blesses those who fear and obey him. God blesses those who fear and obey him. And, and I knew this growing up. My, my, my dad was really strict and, you know, I hated it at the time. <laughs> uh, but I'm, I'm thankful for many of those things now. But I knew that as I would be responsible, he would give me more opportunity. Right? And that's what every parent does. If a child is, is responsible and respectful, then here's, here's more opportunities. Here's more freedoms. That's what God does with us. And, and so if we say, well, it doesn't really seem like God's giving me opportunities. It doesn't seem like he's really blessing me. We have to ask, am I being obedient? Right? Or have I gotten to the point of like, well, I'm 25 years into my Christian walk, and I've kind of got this down. You know, I'm pretty close to God. Well, I mean, we're, not, we're almost there. Right? If that's our attitude, then maybe we need to get back before the Lord, remember who we are compared to him, fear and obey him, and see what blessings he might bring. But this is all through the scriptures, is that God will bless those who fear and obey him. All right. Um, can, oh, whoops, I forgot. Verse 14 and 15 tie into verses 12 and 13. It says, may the Lord give you increase more and more, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. Same principle obedience brings blessing. All right, verse 16, the heaven, even the heavens are the Lord's, but the earth he has given to the children of men. Very interesting verse. So it says the Lord rules the heavens, but he's given dominion of the earth to humans. Okay, it's, it's really important. So I want to explore this for just a minute because this is something that's, that's really debated in culture nowadays. And so I want to take you back to where this comes from. Would you turn back to Genesis 1 for just a moment? I want to look at Genesis 1, uh, verses 26 through 28. Okay, Genesis 1, verses 26 through 28. If, if you want to find a section of verses that are more countercultural to the spirit of the age, I, I don't know if you can find any more than these verses right here. So I just want to break them down really quickly, thinking about this idea that the Lord rules in the heavens, but he's given dominion of the earth to humans. So Genesis 1, 26, and then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them have dominion over the sea, I'm sorry, dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all earth and over every creeping thing that creeps in the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Okay, so a lot there. We don't have time to explore all of it. Just some highlights. 
uh, mankind, human beings, are made in God's image. Okay, made in his likeness. In other words, there's, there's a similarity there. There's a, a relationship there. Only humans are made in God's image. No other creatures are. Okay, another thing here, too, as we see both in verse 26 and in verse 28, is that God has given them dominion. That mankind has dominion over the earth, can make decisions, can do things. As we look around, the roads that we took to get here today are a symbol of that dominion. That man has, has that in him, that, that creative ability to kind of subdue the earth. And another thing here, too, we see in verse 27 is that there are only two genders, male and female, and they're both equally made in God's image. That's also very important. It's not like male is made in God's image and female isn't, or female is made in God's image and male isn't. No, both male and female fully in the image of God, okay? Equal in value, distinct in roles. And so, man, those verses right there, there's so much that we can seek to understand. But uh, as we, as we kind of think about that for just a minute, we realize, okay, well, that's what God's done. But here's the unfortunate point. Here's why the world is the way that it is. Most of humanity walks in disobedience to God's commands. So when you give someone dominion over something and they use, that, they use that authority poorly, bad things happen. That's exactly why. So why is the world the way that it is? It's because God has given mankind dominion and mankind has abused that dominion. He's abused that authority. He's refused to submit to God. And that's why the world is the way that it is. And so this is why we pray in Matthew 6.10, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God's will is done perfectly in heaven. There, there's no angel that when God says to do something there and Michael's like, I don't really feel like it. That's not how he rolls. He just does it. So when we're praying for God's kingdom to come, we're, we're saying, God, can we as human beings submit to you and you know, uh, have a, assert our authority on this world in a way that pleases you, in a way that honors you? So, so often, people blame God for all the bad in this world. Oh, well, if, if God is good, why do all these bad things happen? All these bad things happen is because man fails to submit to God's authority. It's a mess. That's why we have the messes that we have. All right, back to Psalm 115. Let's look at verses 17 and 18 now. It says, The dead do not praise the Lord, nor any who go down into silence, but we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. Okay. So we could obviously have a big theological debate. Well, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And all that we know that people praise God after death. We know that from the book of Revelation, all these things. That's not the point. The point here is that from an earthly standpoint, that, 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 that only the living can praise the Lord on the earth. Right? Only the living can praise the Lord on the earth. So the idea is, as long as I'm alive on this earth, I'm going to praise the Lord. I'm going to do that thing. We talked about this last week about this public praise and about how encouraging that is to one another when you praise the Lord publicly, how encouraging it is to me when I hear you guys singing, you know, at the beginning of, of service. It's a wonderful thing. And, and so praising God is a witness to both believers and unbelievers. So the idea here is redeem the time. Take advantage and praise God as long as you're here because we don't know how much time we have left. And we know that when we go to be with the Lord, that's gonna be awesome. That's gonna, Paul said, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. But for us, if I'm alive today, this is an opportunity to praise the Lord. This is an opportunity to give glory to the Lord because once I'm dead, I'll be praising God in heaven, but it won't be a witness to people here on earth anymore. 
And so let me take advantage of that and praise the Lord while I can. That's the idea. All right, let's move on to Psalm 116. And what we have here is thanksgiving for deliverance from death. Verse 1, he says, I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my supplications. So this is setting the stage for us that the Lord had heard the psalmist, um, that he had rescued the psalmist, and so he was thankful for that. And you and I probably have situations that God has delivered us from. Um, Maybe that time we didn't study for that exam and somehow we still passed. Lord, you delivered me uh, from that moment. So those are some good things for us to think about. Let's let's go ahead and take a big chunk now. Let's look at verses 2 through 11 here. He says, Because he's inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call upon him as long as I live. The pains of death surrounded me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold of me. I found trouble and sorrow. When I called upon the name of the Lord, O Lord, I implore you, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Yes, our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. I was brought low and he saved me. Return to your rest, O my soul, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. You, For you have delivered my soul from death, my my, my eyes from tears, and my feet from falling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed, therefore I spoke. I am greatly afflicted. I said in my haste, all men are liars. Okay, so the psalmist, basically kind of the, the, the tenor of this section is that whatever the psalmist was going through, it was really bad. It was exceedingly difficult. He had no help from people, but God delivered him. When he says all men are liars, the idea there in verse 11 is that, you know, the... the Maybe some people tried to deliver him or promised to deliver him, but they couldn't help him. So there's a couple things that we want to take from this. Number one, we want to take from this is that you can be a faithful servant of God and endure incredible difficulty. Just, just a constant reminder. You know, we, we've listened to too many um, snake oil salesmen on TV, on Christian TV, that tell us if you serve God, everything's going to be awesome. You know, like the, like the Lego movie. Uh, it's not going to be like that. The reality is, if you read through the scriptures, every, every man and woman who served God has endured difficulty, has endured hardship, has endured um, loss. And, and so, you know, servants of God are going to endure difficulty. It's going to happen. Second thing here, though, is that at the end of the day, the Lord's the one we can really count on. You know, even as much as human beings love us, they're, they're limited, right? They can't do it. God can do it. And so we want to remind ourselves that our help ultimately comes from the Lord. And I was reminded of two verses. I'll just read it for you. You don't have to turn there. Psalm 73 verses 25 and 26. The psalmist writes, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So I'd encourage you, if you're going through a really difficult time right now, please go back and read Psalm 73. Psalm 73 is a great psalm to read in the midst of difficulty and kind of help reset some things. All right, let's move on to verse 12 here in Psalm 116. It says, what shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits toward me? And so the idea here is we can't pay the Lord back for all that he's done for us. We can't. There's, there's no way we can do it. What are you going to give to God? You're going to get out your wallet and be like, well, Lord, what what do I owe you? (laughs) It's not going to work. And so it's a rhetorical question. So we can't pay him back, but what we can give him is an offering. 
and he's already instructed us what that offering should be, we can offer him ourselves with thanksgiving. Romans 12, verse 1, Paul says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Now, the good news is Jesus tells us we only have to do this today. In Matthew chapter 6, he says, hey, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness today. So if, if we can moment by moment in today, just say, you know what, I'm going to offer myself up in this moment. Man, this, this situation here at work is, is really driving me crazy, but I'm going to offer myself up to God and seek to obey him in this moment. That's all he's asking for. It doesn't repay him, but it's a beautiful offering that we can give to him. All right, verses 13 and 14 here. It says, I will take up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord now in the presence of all his people. So just three things I see here. First of all is, you know, we should receive what God offers. Notice, I will take up the cup of salvation. Whatever God wants to give me, I, I'm going to receive that. I'm going to take it to myself. Second thing here, he says, I will call upon the name of the Lord. So we take what God offers and then we pray to God right? We spend time with him. We're in relationship with him. The, the greatest thing that we can give to another person, you know, in life is ourselves, is to give ourselves to. That's all God wants from you. He just wants you. Not all the stuff you can do, not all these talents, just yourself. Give yourself to him. And the third thing that we see here when he says, I will pay my vows to the Lord now in the presence of all the people, is basically give God what he asks for. So if God asks for us to be a living sacrifice, well, I'm just, I'm just going to give that to him. So it's, it's a beautiful picture that as we really seek to understand the word of God, it, it actually really becomes simple. Now, moving on here in verse 15, okay, it says, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. And so that's kind of a, a little bit of a difficult verse to understand. Here's the big idea, I believe, is simply this. The death of a believer is not a light thing to the Lord. The death of the believer is not a light thing to the Lord. It's something meaningful to him. It's something important to him. Now, we don't have time to get there because we're running low on time, but I want to give you some verses to look up on your own if you want. It's Acts chapter 8. Actually, I think it's Acts chapter 7. I think I miswrote that. I think it's Acts 7, 54 through 60. It's the death of Stephen. Look for the death of Stephen in the book of Acts. But, but basically what we see here is as Stephen is being martyred for his faith, how Jesus Christ stands up at the right hand of the Father to receive him. It's telling us that when a saint dies, a believer dies, it's a big deal to God. It's something that's a big deal. So that's, that's really important for us to understand because if it's a big deal to God and we're told in the book of Revelation that Jesus has the keys of Hades and death, well, then that gives me great comfort because my, if my death is a big deal to the Lord, then I can trust him that I'm going to die when, when he allows me to die, when it's his choice, not mine. Let's move on to verses 16 and 17. It says, O Lord, truly I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. So because the psalmist had been freed from a desperate situation that he was involved in, he had vowed to serve the Lord and offer sacrifices and pray to the Lord. And, and the image that I think about is from the old movies where there would be an individual who's saved, right? He's delivered in some way. Uh, he, was, he got pushed out of the way when he was going to get run over, something like that. And then he owes his life to the person who saved him. It's like, I'm going to be with you forever. I'm going to be your servant forever. 
And, and that's really us and the Lord. The Lord has delivered us. He saved us. And so we're to give our lives over to him. We've been saved from eternal punishment. We've been promised heaven. So it's only right that we should serve him in this temporary time that we have left in this life. Verses 18 and 19, I will pay my vows to the Lord now in the presence of all his people in the courts of the, the Lord's house in the midst of you, O Jerusalem, praise the Lord. And so again, we're just reminded here, public worship is a good thing. Public worship is a good thing. All right, quickly, Psalm 117, just two verses, says, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Laud him, all you peoples, for his merciful kindness is great toward us, and the truth of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. Now, so what we have here in Psalm 117 is he's, as the psalmist is calling on Gentiles, non-Jews, to worship the Lord. He's inviting them in. And this is an exciting thing. If you're familiar with the book of Acts, the early church had kind of like, does God want to save Gentiles? Does God not want to save Gentiles? He's always made it clear he wanted to save Gentiles. But sometimes because we kind of get lost in our own culture, we lose sight of truth. And so this is a beautiful thing that Gentiles are included when it says there, he says, for his merciful kindness is great toward us. It's talking about the Gentiles. And, and so I wanted you to turn to the book of Re Revelation as we kind of wind down our time. There's three places in the book of Revelation I want to turn to to show how God invites. So that's really what I want to focus on is God's inviting people into his kingdom. So every person you pass today, if, you, if the Lord leads you, you could invite them into the kingdom. Invite them to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I love that it's people from all over the place, all over the planet. Revelation chapter 5, let's look at verses 9 and 10. We read this. So there's this, this multitude in heaven. So this is taking place in heaven. John has had this vision of the future. And it says, and they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and you have redeemed us to God by your blood, here it is, out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. I mean, we live in a time in human history where we seem to be going backwards, and it's like, well, you know, let, let's, let's separate into groups based on skin color again. Let, let's, look at, let's look at all of life through this lens. And then as we look at what the scriptures say, the scripture says that people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, of every skin color, of every background, if they've trusted in Jesus Christ, they're going to be brought together. And, and so it's foolishness to allow Satan to sow discord among the brethren, to divide things up. That's not how it is. We want to invite people in, no matter where they're from, no matter what they've done, that Christ died for them. Next place, Revelation 7. Let's look at verses 9 and 10. Paul says, after, I'm sorry, John writes, after these things I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could number of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb, and the Lamb is Jesus Christ, clothed with white robes and palm branches in their hands and crying out with a, a loud voice saying, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And so these are people who are saved out of the great tribulation as that's going on the earth, and they're from all over the place. And then the last place in Revelation I want you to turn to is Revelation 22, verse 17. As the book closes, this is what we read here in verse 17. Revelation 22, verse 17, this invitation to all to partake, says, and the Spirit, so that's the Holy Spirit, and the bride, that's a church, the Spirit and the bride say, come. Come. 
and let him who hears come, and let him who thirsts come, whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. It's a beautiful invitation that all are invited to trust in the Lord. All right, well, we'll wrap up our time now, and I'll leave you with three applications for thankful servants. Application number one is I would encourage you, I'd encourage me to take time to consider the works that God has done. This book is filled with the works that God has done. But you know what, there's also a lot of books that have been written, you know, about things that have happened in church history, about what God has done. You have things in your own life that God has done. Take time to consider the works that God has done. Number two, abandon every form of idolatry. If you find, you and I find ourselves like being drawn to some created thing and that created thing is just really the the center of our universe, we need to let go of that. Because that dehumanizes us. That's not what God has for us. God wants to make us into the fullness of what he's made us to be. And then thirdly and finally, serve God faithfully wherever he has given you dominion. God has given you dominion. God has given you a sphere of influence. God has given you a place. And it, it may be small in your own eyes, but it, it's, don't think it's too small because we'll all answer for what we've been given dominion over. So whatever the dominion is God has given you, then trust and say, well, God is my master. I want to be a faithful steward over what he's given me until he, until he calls me home. Let's pray.